This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Billy Collins' poetry reminds me of the most exquisite jazz musicians or jazz dancers. Although they are steeped in classical training and structure, their formality is invisible. We only experience their freedom and grace and wit. This is probably why Billy is referred to as the most popular 21st century poet. We don't need to interpret his poetry. We merely enter it, relish it, and often exit the poem with a smile, a smile of understanding, of surprise, of pleasure, or of meaning. Billy served two terms as U.S. Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003, was a distinguished professor of English at Lehman College for decades, and has read his poetry all over the world, as well as three stints at the White House. His latest book, Musical Tables, tests the genre by creating the small poem. As Billy says, they seem to arrive and depart at the same time, disappearing in a wink. Musical Tables is bound to join the bestseller list as many of his previous books of poetry have done. It is my honor to welcome my friend, Billy Collins, to Just the Right Book. Thanks for having me. Can I have a copy of that? <laughs> yes. You Sounds can. so good. <laughs> Do you want to hand it out to other people? <laughs> uh, Billy, so I'm going to start with the most obvious of questions. But when you first became interested in writing, was there a fork in the road where you were trying to decide prose, poetry? No, it was always poetry. And I'm not sure exactly. Well, I could say in in a kind of high-handed way that poetry is superior to prose because because of its antiquity, for one thing. And it's the most most exceptional thing you can do with language, I think. I mean, to go into that just slightly, well, we're talking about prose, we're talking about the novel, basically, aren't we? Or the short prose fiction. I just, well, first of all, I wouldn't know how to write a story. (laughs) Prose fiction requires an interest in other people. (laughs) <laughs> now, poetry requires an interest only in yourself. And, and here's, here's my, uh, my metaphor, image for it. The prose writer is looking in other people's windows. Mm. He or she is out on the lawn there and wants to know what they're doing. And not only that, what they're thinking and how they're behaving in the bedroom, not just the kitchen. The poet is in that house looking out the window at the world. Mm. And the poet's the poet's perspective is basically his or her view of what whatever is seen out there. So I think that's a huge difference. And I, I just wouldn't know how to construct a story or anything. And I I was always one of the things I was, not this is not because <laughs> it doesn't come up as a forced transition, but one of the things I was really attracted to by poetry is its brevity. In other words, that you know, it 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 can take 
<clears throat> place and um, a sonnet is you know fits on many poems lyric poems fit on a page and in fitting on a page they leave a lot of blankness around them and by that I, I mean silence so I think a poem is a displacement of silence whereas a prose fills the page well Billy one of the things though that I think about when you talk about it I mean we could I'm sure some prose writers would um, de debate <laughs> some of your yeah. observations. But one of the things that fascinates me is I think the the a writer has to bring the full sensibility of a novel to a short story. And uh, similarly, I'm fascinated by the capacity to tell a story in poetry. A and I think you're bringing up an interesting distinction about the metaphor that you used of looking in the window as opposed to looking out the window, but both of them are requiring a level of observation. True enough, yeah, because the novel, at least the traditional novel, is guided by social realism. And that simply means that what is going on in the, no the novel, the scene that's happening in the novel, is one you could see out your back window. You know, there's a bus going by, someone's eating a sandwich and that kind of thing. And that kind of detail or fleshing out the scene of the novel it accounts for mostly, it's, I think, its draw in, in addition to having a plot. But um, I don't think of my poems as stories. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're too short to be stories, even, even really short stories. I mean, because the novel or the short story takes up time to read, I mean, the short story maybe 45 minutes in the novel, maybe a month in my case. But um, there's no time in the poem to develop suspense. There is time to have surprise in, in right. poetry, but not so much suspense. Well, and I guess when I say story, because that's, that's interesting that you say that, because the reason I say story is when I read a poem, even your small poems, which we'll we'll talk about in in a sec about using that structure, mm -hmm. it it is evocative to me of a whole scene, maybe not a story, but it's it, so it feels like a teeny tiny story to me. Well, it's a little bit of a pebble in a pond where the you know there there are ripples that are not expressed or intended, but they're felt by the reader. So, I mean, the, one of the attractions to the small poem, I, I like to call them small instead of short. Short sounds derogatory in a way, is that it's an extension of poetry's rather famous or widely praised ability to condense large emotional and conceptual material into a small space so that the specific density is, of a poem is higher than that of a, of a piece of prose. And if you get down to two, uh, one, two, three, or four line poems, then it's it's a whole it's a whole different animal because there's no there's no room in it for landscape. There's no room for um, a beginning, middle, and an end, or past, present, future. There's 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 no room for a lot of the things we expect to get from poetry. There's just some kind of emotion in that poem. Does it make it harder, Billy, to because if I think of, I've read every poetry book you've written, and I've certainly read every poem 
in the new book, it feels to me like like whittling it down to the jewels of every word needs to matter. There can't be a superfluous word in the poem. Must be harder. Well, I think of that that applies to a longer poem as well. And I try not to have, I mean, I think really good poems don't have superfluous matter in them. And you shake the page and, and get rid of words that are not really doing their job or words that are sleeping on the job. <laughs> well, I don't see difficulty. The diff, I don't see difficulty as really attached to the experience because these poems arrive, not mm. uh, all the time, but when they arrive, they arrive almost fully formed. There's very little revision. There's very little, even a compositional experience that has duration and, and length to it. They often arrive in a uh, cooked, and I just, I mean, it sounds like an exaggeration, but I just write them down. <laughs> I mean, but you have to have, <laughs> you have to have a taste for this kind of thing. You have to be on the lookout for them. Otherwise, they'll fly past you like some video game. So you, you you know, you have to have uh, your, yeah, your receptors out. So in reading or coming across a word, you can feel the possibility of a small poem popping out of it. So, Billy, to go back to the language that you used in the beginning and about being an observer inside. So you were an only child. And did that contribute to your being a better observer? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I was and remain an only child. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents didn't pop up with another one later. No, a spoiler, right? No, we now my wife and I, me with an asterisk because I'm not biologically involved, have two grandchildren who are two plus, right? Two and mm. four months or whatever. And I thought this is great. Well, it would be one only child, <laughs> but. But both of the mothers are pregnant now. So the poor things are going to have their their only childhood ruined by the this interloper. That's but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of time as an only child. I mean, I had a lot of time for solitude, a taste for solitude. And I think later on in life, reading and writing poetry was a way of intensifying solitude. I'm a fairly social person, but my poetry is is not very social. It's not really about other people very much. And, um, you know, Wordsworth begins his little poem about the daffodils by picturing himself wandering lonely. Wandering is one thing. Wandering lonely as a cloud. But then at the very end of the poem, he achieves what he calls the bliss of solitude. So he goes from, in the transit of the poem, he goes from loneliness to solitude. In other words, bad being mm. alone to good being alone. Right. And um, yeah, I have a poem called Only Child in which... Uh, Would you share it with us? I'm sure. Um, <laughs> it, it, it has a little to... It mentions the, the, uh, the pleasure of solitude or the need for it. But it's also it also takes into account one of the drawbacks of being an only child. Here's some glasses right here. Yeah, it's called Only Child. I never wished for a sibling, boy or girl. Center of the universe, I had the back of my parents' car all to myself. I could look out one window, 
then slide over to the other window without any quibbling over territorial rights. And whenever I played a game on the floor of my bedroom, it was always my turn. Not until my parents entered their 90s did I long for a sister. A nurse I named Mary, who worked in a hospital five minutes away from their house, and who would drop everything, even a thermometer, whenever I called. Be there in a jiff and on my way were two of her favorite expressions. And now that the parents are dead, I wish I could meet Mary for coffee every now and then at that Italian place with the blue awning where we would sit and reminisce even on rainy days. I would gaze into her green eyes and see my parents, my mother looking out of Mary's right eye and my father staring out of her left, which would remind me of what an odd duck I was as a child, a little prince and a loner who would break off from his gang of friends on a Saturday and find a hedge to hide behind. And I would tell Mary all about that too and never embarrass her by asking about her non-existence. And maybe we would have another espresso and a pastry and I would always pay the bill and walk her home. Mm. Jeez, Billy, that's, that's fabulous. And... It does remind me, we had dinner once, you, my husband, and I, and our son. He was about nine at the time, at nine or ten, somewhere around there. And he had a few thoughts as we were driving home alone in the back seat, where he was alone in the back seat as an only child. One is he was, you shared being Irish, and he was fascinated that a poet could play golf <laughs> and it, and he was already playing golf and you had talked about that. And what was fun about that is it was an early way of thinking differently about not just being a poet, but mm -hmm. anything, right? Because it was his first glimpse of thinking he had sort of preconceived notions of what mm -hmm. is. Well, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of readers can't picture writers doing anything else but writing. And they, you know, they kind of mentally keep the writer in some kind of, I don't know, casket and, you know, some vampiristic person. I'm, I'm stretching it now. It comes out and writes and then goes back in the casket. I mean, I was at, at the movies once and um, I, I, I heard uh, two young uh, women behind me, a couple of rows behind me. And one of them whispered, that's my English teacher. And, and like, the, what were you doing out? Yeah, and then out of my <laughs> casket. And then the other one said, what's he doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to have a life outside of the classroom or outside of the literary experience is, is odd. So, Billy, speaking of you being an only child and talking to Mary, I love that concept. It does make me ask about your father, who seems to have been a source of some of the humor that permeates your poems. Well, yeah, he was very fu funny, and um, he had a stock of uh, jokes that he could tell, formal jokes. But he also was very sharp, kind of witty guy who, uh, very sarcastic in a way, very, uh, a lot of put-downs. 
And that had kind of equipped me for going into high school and college where mm. um, uh, putting other students down was, uh, it was kind of a sport. And he was also a practical joker. And I can't go into that. It's just uh, the practical jokes are, are too uh, lengthy and, and too engineered to quickly explain. Did you enjoy that then? Or oh, I loved did it. it. I, would, yeah. I, loved, yeah. I loved his sense of humor because he, he gave me a, a sense of you could control things around you by by this kind of humorous. And the other mm. thing about that was, I mean, when I wrote poems early on, I mean, before I was in, in high school and college and beyond that, you know, I didn't think you could be funny in poetry. I've said this before, but it was sort of humor was kind of banished from poetry by the English Romantic poets. And and they put in, uh, after they got rid of sex and humor, they uh, they substituted a landscape, which always <laughs> like not a good deal. But finally, I started reading poets like Philip Larkin and William Matthews and Kenneth Koch and, 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 and quite a few others and Richard Bradigan, who were funny, but with, uh, with, with a serious program. And I realized, and this was a great release for me because I was, I thought I was funny. At least I tried to be funny. My father was, it was kind of an Irish trait and like a deprecating trait usually. Mm, yeah. So, so that prompts, I have one question. And then what I'd like to do is ask you to read a few poems before we go on to more. But in one of your interviews, I think I have this right. You mentioned that Bugs Bunny was your muse. And actually, when I read that, or when I heard you say that, I thought, well, that makes sense to me, actually, that having been a Bugs Bunny fan myself, but share with us, well, A, confirm that I heard that properly. And if Bugs Bunny is your muse, why? Well, not not exactly my muse, but I always like Warner Brothers, Mary Melody's cartoons, as opposed to mm-hmm. Disney. And the Disney characters were... You know, they were married, for God's sake. I mean, it was a totally bourgeois scene. And, uh, you know, Uncle Donald had nephews, and how that occurred is very, very... Well, mystery. (laughs) A mystery that will not never be revealed. But, like, you couldn't picture, like, a Mrs. Daffy Duck, right? I mean, these are are unmanageable and unmarriageable characters. But what happened was this came to a head when the Wall Street Journal asked a number of writers to talk about a guilty pleasure, to write something about it. And uh, like Juno Diaz wrote about being addicted to a video game. I think it was called, uh, it was about stealing cars. It was, anyway, it was one of the, one of the kind of uh, crude games of the day. So I thought back and I, I thought of, when I was watching Looney Tunes cartoons, it gave me a sense of the plasticity of mm. of experience and you know many most of the rules of, of physics and nature are suspended were defied <laughs> or defied or you or it was it was sometimes it just was naturally occurring i mean bugs bunny could he could pull a like a refrigerator out of his pants or something and he wasn't <laughs> even wearing pants i mean this was all it was just it was just <laughs> it was just great <laughs> it was just wild much just wild and i think um yeah, so that it was a pleasure, and, and the Wall Street Journal made a huge thing out of it. They they had on the banner in the in the art section on Saturday, 
they had cartoons of uh, all the all the Looney Tunes characters dressed up in gowns like Roman muses. You know? <laughs> it was hilarious. I love it. And that's where the muse came from. But. Right, Billy, now you got to work. Now you got to work and read some of your poems. This is not the the easy part is done. Well, actually, that that was work. (laughs) (laughs) This is easy. So this is musical tables. It's got a cow on a couch. And don't ask me why. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what the hell does that have to do with anything that I mean, it's a it's fun and made me smile. But (laughs) that's all it has to do. That's just that was the okay. So I'll read a few of these. They're very short, and I'll just go from one to the other. And the first one is called 3 a.m. Only my hand is asleep, but it's a start. (laughs) That was actually in my top 10. Some of them are very simple. Um, Breakfast. In the hotel restaurant, orange koi in a pond. I toss in some cornflakes. (laughs) casual there this is four lines long carbon dating he tried it once as a last resort but most of the women were a million years old (laughs) and some of them are more some of them are serious i mean here's one called divorce no more heavy ball just the sound of the dragged Mm. chain with every other step. Hmm. Billy, would you read The Angler? Do you know what page? It's on page 113. Then I'll read it. The thing about this book is that there are about 125 poems in it. So the table of contents is huge. It's like six pages long. So it's very hard to locate. Here's The Angler. Alone with my thoughts, I spent the day in the stream of consciousness. So again, it's taking something like the stream of consciousness and taking it literally. So the stream of consciousness is a metaphor, right? Mm. A kind of flow of, of things flowing through your consciousness. But here, and in many of these poems, there's an intentional and slightly perverse misunderstanding that, that the stream is metaphoric and it's taken literally. I mean, the first poem I read, 3 a.m., only my hand is asleep, but it's a start. Asleep, when we say your hand's asleep, that's a metaphor. It's not really sleeping, we hope. Yeah, It's right. numb because of some you know, nerve function. But it's sort of like putting the dog to sleep. The dog is not really sleeping. So those are metaphors. But if you take it literally, then you think, well, maybe my whole body will be asleep. <laughs> but if that's the case, your body would be just numb from every, you know, head to toe. And Billy, one of the things I noticed in these poems is the opening of the poems, even if it's a word, are kind of flirty, as if they're saying, interested. And it made me wonder if the small poems have any structure that you adhere to? 
Well, I'm beginning to think of the small poems as a kind of genre and in itself. And the only I have a little afterward in this book, and I mentioned that the only requirement, I mean, the sonnet has 14 lines and a rhyme scheme and certain rhythms and all that. But the only requirement for the short poem or the small poem is its length, or as I say in the afterward, its lack of length. So as long as it's short, it gets into the genre. In the titles you mentioned, the poem Only My Hands is Asleep wouldn't mean that much if it, the title were not 3 a.m. Exactly. The Hour of Insomnia. And here's a poem called New York Directions. It's down in the village between bleak and bleakest. <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to get a kind of New York voice there. Like it's down in the village between bleak and bleakest. Right. Would you like to hear one that's a tiny bit longer? It's called Bad. I would. And this is this title has to be kept in mind, I'd say. It's called Bad Hotel. I told the woman from housekeeping who was eager to do my room to just come in and pretend I'm not here, which is exactly what I had been doing ever since I checked in. <laughs> so, Billy, when you say these poems come to you, it seems to me that you need to leave space in your brain or your time for for you to even be aware that they're coming to you. Yeah, well, I have, I have the time. I mean, I mean, it goes back to the only child cultivation of a, of a taste for solitude. You know, Wordsworth talks about a wise passivity and, and by which he means if we stop projecting ourselves into the day and controlling it and and actually do nothing, and this would kind of just slightly overlap the Venn diagram of Buddhist meditation, if we just do nothing, information will come in that would not have come in had we been aggressively pounding through the day with mm-hmm. agenda, right? It's like the example of, Someone who forgets to take their umbrella, they come back in the house and they look around the house and all they see is no umbrella, no umbrella, no umbrella, no umbrella, oh, umbrella. And that's, if we have an agenda for the day, we often see nothing but but that agenda. We don't see what mm-hmm. we're looking at. Billy, one of, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, I have not one wit of formal understanding or education regarding poetry. Take my master class. Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. I I will do that. I was going to say, I love reading poetry. I love it because I surrender to the words. Mm -hmm. I just simply let them rearrange my brain. Mm -hmm. But as a bookseller, I often find it's challenging or tricky to get a reader who historically doesn't read poetry to just try it and experiment. And when you were the poet laureate, I was already a bookseller and I sensed progress in reintroducing poetry into public spaces and reminding readers that they don't need to be scholars to enjoy poetry. Do you feel like over these decades, there's been progress where people are more game? Um, yeah, I would say somewhat. I mean, 
if you if you trace back uh, trace back to the beginning of why these people stop reading poetry, well, the reason is that they they were forced to read poetry in school. That's the most full or intense confrontation with poetry or experience of it that we have is in school. So when people graduate from school, and since poetry is often taught the wrong way as a kind of puzzle, then one thinks, why do I need poetry anymore, any more than I, I need algebra? And they leave it there. And what they, what they don't like is two things. They don't like the way it was taught because it's, um, they felt stupid. Teaching made, made them, was designed to make them feel ignorant, rather. And the other thing is they're reading school poetry and they don't, they don't bother to see how poetry is advanced. So when I was in school, it was poets with beards and three names who were dead <laughs> and all men. I have one is a title of one of these uh, musical tables poems. The title of the poem is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And the poem is Trouble Was Not His Middle Name. So, but anyway, that's something that doesn't bother me. I mean, Joseph Epstein, writing about contemporary poetry, said it's flourishing in a in a vacuum. More poetry readings, more MFA programs. There's just a flood of poetry, but the audience is highly composed of fellow poets. Although I do think, I do think particularly when you were poet laureate, and certainly with the books that you've published. I, I think people are are more open to thinking about poetry as another reading pleasure and not something they have to work at. I, I, I think so too, because there's so much good accessible poetry around or so much very readable poetry around. And it's very satisfying to see people returning to poetry because there's so many pleasures there. Mm. Billy, one of the things I've heard you say in some of the interviews, which I love this concept, is that there's a deep strain of existential gratitude that runs through poetry. Would you elaborate on that for us? Well, I think the gratitude is probably tied to paying attention to the world around us. I mean, so many poets, starting with the Romantics, but I mean, Tennyson, up through, I mean, if you want to fast forward, Mary Oliver as a, uh, how would you say, I mean, a watcher, a uh, an observer, uh, someone who's keeping track and looking around and paying attention to the periphery where, where some of the real action is. If one slows down enough to pay attention, I, I think the, the joys of attention once they start arising at simply what you're looking at, and it doesn't need to be some, you know, kind of corny sunset. It can just be um, the vision of a of a bee just shouldering her way into a flower that captures your attention. And uh, once you feel the, the interest and even the thrill and joy of, of observing these things, it's hard not to feel gratitude. It's hard not to feel lucky that you have observed them. You know, especially knowing that you're lucky to see this because as Annie Dillard said, nature 
is a now you see it, now you don't experience. You can't walk into the woods and, and say to nature, okay, you know, hit now. me. Give me, the, give me the good stuff. You might sit by a lake, you know, for an hour or so and nothing happens. And five minutes after you walk away, these two swans start fighting or something. You know? And so it, it, to be at the intersection of you and an interesting natural event, I think one has to feel that that's fortuitous. And I, I can't see that the next step wouldn't be some form of gratefulness. Mm-hmm. Because that's a, there's a kind of presence and optimism about that. Yeah, uh, very much so. I mean, the trust that the natural world particularly is uh, always giving, is always, and, and all you need to do is slow down and be uh, a receiver. All you have to do is is value looking. And I mean, that, you know, one of the reasons that I was introduced, I mean, I was introduced to small poems with probably by haiku was the beginning of it. And haiku is 17 syllables. That's There's a little side debate about that, but it does have a formal design, unlike just the small poem, which just has to be small. But haiku has to do something else. It has to really the really good bullseye haiku have to kind of illuminate very simply a, a moment that just starts burning often it's just taking two things that happen at the same time you know like there's a, there's a waterfall and then you hear a bird well there's no real connection between the two except that you were there to to hear both of them at the same time and that's that's enough to to make mm-hmm. it a joyous moment, but I, you know I got into I, I liked Richard Bradigan's poems. I mean he has he has a poem called I think it's the way she looks at it, and the poem is every time I see him, I think gosh am I glad he's not my old man. Always <laughs> like that one, and he has another sad one. It's called the widow's lament, and she says it's not quite cold enough to go borrow some firewood from the neighbors. Mm. So that's, a, you'd say that's a, a, mi- a miniature story yeah. or just a sentence from a, a longer story. Billy, you know, I noticed in some poetry lately that the the form is being used to write something that's more proximate to a memoir. Yeah. Is that... Well, I guess this is not a fair question to raise, but is is that a legitimate use of of poetry? Well, yeah, I I would never stand at the and be a gatekeeper about yeah, right. This poetry, this isn't poetry. I'd let it. I mean, if you think it's poetry, or then it is. It is. It, it, then you can say, well, it's it's awful, or it's it's not interesting, or it's just bad. But I wouldn't argue about whether it can come in to the room or not. The trouble with, I mean, the potential trouble with ego, very ego-based, memoir-based poetry is that it has the kind of presumption of interest on the part of the reader. I always think of the reader as a completely indifferent creature whose attention needs to be won in order to be secured so that it can be maintained. And um, one of the criteria for that is, Poems should be interesting. And that's that's hard to say if you're dealing with 
poetry workshops because you can't teach someone to be interesting and you can't teach someone to write interesting poems. But if it's just what happened to you in the past and how miserable it made you feel, because the past is often a source of misery, then it's, it's I guess it's, it's just a lesser form of poetry or less interesting to me anyway. Yeah, something else has to be in there. So mm-hmm. It has to be verbally interesting. I mean, I, I don't read poetry to find out about other people and their past. I read poetry to get kicks from poetry. I, I, I want to get literary thrills. And that's uh, achieved by poetry that's that's interesting, that makes interesting maneuvers, that uses language in a in a interesting way. This is my new word, by the way. Well, but you know, Billy, I do think one of the things I notice reading these small poems, I, I find this generally true with your poetry, but I really felt it in these small poems is that there was an enormous amount of energy, as if, you know, like the words were kind of playing with each other, that there was just an internal energy to reading the poem, which is why I said what I said in the introduction is you'd get seduced into the poem, there'd be a teeny point, and then there'd be a pivot to a surprise, but there was total energy in it. Oh, I'd cop to that. I mean, uh, that's great. I mean, the a pivot into a surprise, that's that's desirable. Yeah, it's it's that's a very good description of what's going on in these small poems because they they're kind of they're playing with they're playing with a, a word around them or one word is used in two different mm-hmm. ways. So there's kind of an internal sufficiency about the little poem it doesn't really want to spread out to other places and it's often not even a compression of some bigger thing i haven't i've written any of these by saying here well here's a big thing let's try to make it smaller it it exists as a small thing well here's one here this is it's called corridor i've grown old now my own name rings a bell Mm. So that is just, uh, it's kind of, I like to say torque, there's a little torque there. Torque being pressure applied with a twisting motion, right? So the poem, but I love the way you say that the words are interested in each other. I think that's a good definition of poetry. Mm -hmm. It's a group of words that are interested in each other. In prose, I mean, forgive me for simplifying this, but the, the the movement of prose is is always forward, and it's the sentence that is driving that forwardness. Yeah. And you know, Billy, as we're talking about this, one of the things I'm realizing that I love about reading poetry, so I'm going to assume this is true of the rest of the world, because why not, is poetry more than prose makes me extremely present. And I think we don't often either make room for that to be present or it's hard to do. So I think it sort of stops you as you read the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree that the, uh, it's, uh, (laughs) how to put this, but my persona, for lack of a better title, doesn't really have much of a past. He tends to be a, a present observer, and he's he's really not a an, he's really not an autobiographical presence. He doesn't he doesn't seem to have any 
either not much interest in talking about his past or because he doesn't exist, actually, we might as well <laughs> say that he never had a past. And he doesn't seem to have a job or a wife or a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have a house or, well, he has a house, but you never see him <laughs> taking up the garbage or, or that kind of thing. So he's kind of an idealization of me, I suppose. But yeah, and he's often just in a moment. And as he, the poem starts in the present, then it can go anywhere else. But the present is a very good place to start. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your persona, there's an air of confidence about you, for sure, the only child thing. But mostly you always have this self-deprecating air of humility. I mean, even Billy sounds like the guy next door. But you were, in fact, the big dog U.S. poet laureate. I mean, that was real. Did you ever feel like that was somebody else, like sort of distinct from you, like the other Billy Collins? Because Yeah, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) I think if you get an award, like I I don't, we could talk about, I don't know how to broaden that, but let's just stick with awards or uh, things that make you, that dignify you. It does seem like it's not happening to you. I mean, part of it could be just what's called the fraud effect. Yeah, the imposter syndrome. Yeah, the imposter syndrome that, uh, you know, sitting there hearing someone introduce you before reading, as you introduced me, it often, if if the introduction goes on for a while, I start wondering, who is is this person? (laughs) Right. It couldn't be me because it just all sounds too good. And I know there's not so... Yeah, it's true. It's separate. It's a separation thing. Seamus Heaney said that you have to, um, not to put myself in his category for the moment, but he said you have to learn how to survive your success. Mm. You know, because we're, we're all, most of us are trying to succeed, but once we, if you actually do succeed, there's there are other problems that arise, and one of them is how to survive that without just getting lost in it. By the way, you mentioned my name, right? Billy, my good friend George Green just gave me another another biography of the English 18th century poet William Collins. Now, this is part of the life of the poets. Right. Yes. And so he wrote a famous poem called Ode to Evening. And uh, no self-respecting or complete anthology of English literature would be uh, complete without that poem in it. And I knew early on that that name was taken. And for actors in ASCAP, is it? Mm-hmm. You can't have, you can't just call yourself, you know, Bill Murray or something. That name is yeah. taken. And I thought, well, William Collins is, is taken, so I'll go the other way. That's where that came from. So, Billy, do you think that the 9 or 10 or 11 or 12-year-old you that first thought of writing poetry would have imagined the possibility of being as public a poet as you've become? Oh, no. Absolutely. I mean, he wouldn't have imagined anything except the, the scribbles that he's doing. No, I was always intimidated by 
by poets and poetry. And I, I, I think I felt so self-conscious about it that I didn't really associate, I didn't hang around with poets generally in, in college or beyond. I hung around with just painters or bartenders or not so much poets. My persona is self-deprecating, I think, because he's very aware of the kind of the silliness of being a poet or the pretentiousness of being a poet. If you say you're a novelist, it just means you write novels. And someone talking to you on an airplane will accept that and even maybe be impressed by it. But if you say you're a poet, this conjures up in the listener's mind all sorts of horrible associations. <laughs> and it, because it also sounds like a, a self-dignifying word. Yeah. Like you're a pet. You're flying above. Like pretentious. Com- flying above the common man. You know, as part. Well, Billy, what I'd like to do, I'd like to have you close with a poem. And I'll, I'll thank you in advance so that we end the podcast with your poem. But I, I, I want to thank you on a couple of different levels. One is for taking the time to be in conversation. But the other is, I I think your poetry, all, all of your books, and I've been a bookseller for over 30 years. And one of the things that's the honor of being a bookseller is putting the right book in somebody's hand, the possibility that a book can change someone's life. And I can't think of a pleasure that is part of introducing people to your books or having them read more of your books because there isn't a reader that I've met literally in over 30 years that doesn't just feel enhanced by reading your poetry. And that's that's very, and now I'm starting to dissociate from myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's that other Billy Collins, that other guy over there. It's not the guy hanging out in his house, you know, (laughs) trying to do that. But, you know, that's the reality. And I, on behalf of all those readers, just would really like to thank you for that. Well, that's very kind. Well, let me, let me get back at you and, and praise you for being a heroic bookseller, which is a nice way for you to put it, too. But you know, now that you know, bookstores are, are uh, they're coming back, actually, mm-hmm. in a way. They've been terribly threatened. And you and Ann Padgett and others, uh, other valiant people, have maintained, you have held your ground. Yeah, and it's and so fun. Provided this great service, so... Good for you. I admire you. Well, thank you. Now, how about that closing poem, Mr. Collins? Okay. Well, I'm going to read a poem from a book called Whale Day, which came out a couple of years ago. And it's called Life Expectancy. On the morning of a birthday that ended in a zero, I was looking out at the garden when it occurred to me that the robin on her worm hunt in the dewy grass had a good chance of outliving me as did the worm itself, for that matter, if he managed to keep his worm head down. It was not always like this. For decades, I could assume that I would be around longer than the squirrel dashing up a tree, or the nightly raccoons in the garbage, longer than the barred owl on a branch, 
the ibis, the chicken, and the horse, longer than those four deer in a clearing, and every creature in the zoo except the elephant and the giant tortoise whose cages I would hurry past. It was just then in my calculations that the cat padded noiselessly into the room, and it seemed reasonable, given her bright eyes and glossy coat, to picture her at my funeral, dressed all in black as usual, which would nicely set off her red collar. Some of the mourners might pause in their grieving to notice as she found a place next to a labradoodle in a section of the church reserved for their kind. <laughs> I always wanted to use labradoodle. <laughs> well, we've been talking with Billy Collins, whose latest book of poetry is called Musical Tables. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. Can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.